This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. What I want us to pay attention to is not just photographic truth, but what I call photographic affect, right? That is how photographs move us emotionally and sometimes to take action. When something like that grabs us, then we need to think about, and that's what I'm trying to get us to do, think about why it is that this has grabbed our attention. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Ellen T. Armour. She is E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Chair and Professor of Feminist Theology at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville, Tennessee, where she also directs the Carpenter Program in Religion, Gender, and Sexuality. Her previous books include Signs and Wonders, Theology After Modernity. Today we're talking about her recent book, Seeing and Believing, Religion, Digital Visual Culture, and social justice. Professor Ellen T. Armour, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. I'm so excited to be with you. So I'm going to start our conversation in a little bit of a weird place. We're going to do a sweep of more than a century here. If we were to go back 120 years and we wanted to talk about a photograph, we would be talking about a kind of a silver plate called a daguerreotype. And in order to get a photograph, you would have to sit in a posed place for a number of minutes. There'd be a lot of really large, bulky equipment. It would be a very awkward affair. If we move through my birth decade of the 1970s, suddenly we have a much smaller type of photograph called a Polaroid. And you click the button and the little thing comes out and it develops right before your eyes. And nowadays, we have cameras in our pockets. We take photographs everywhere that we go. And my first question to you, since this is a book all about seeing, it's about thinking about things like photographs, I want to ask about that sweep from the daguerreotype 130 years ago to the selfie that I just took a few moments ago with the camera in my pocket. Is there something essential that we can find that draws together all of those different ways of thinking about a photograph? Or is the technology that we're using in each of these moments, making each of these interactions with this thing that we call a photograph, a very different thing? I, I think that's where I'd like to start. Yeah, that's a great question. Really great question. Yeah, the technology is so very different now than it was certainly during the era of the daguerreotype. And even from the Polaroid, one of the things that I 
talk about and seeing and believing is, are those differences and what they mean for how we interact with photographs and even how we understand them. So you were referring to, for example, the technology it took, right, to put a photograph together, right, back in the daguerreotype days. And that's reflected in this term photograph, right, which is, which means light writing. So here's what you had to have a photograph, right? You had to have light, you had to have an object, and you had to have somebody holding a gadget, right, and pointing it at that object and deciding when and where to click the shutter, right? Now, for a daguerreotype, as you're pointing out, that took a long time. It was a lot more work. Over time, the photograph, the camera got much easier, got became more portable and became more democratized too, right? It went from something that you had to be highly trained in order to use, like a daguerreotype, to something that even before the Polaroid Instamatic, the Kodak Instamatic, I'm sorry, before the Polaroid, the Kodak Instamatic, which you couldn't quite put in your pocket. It was a little too big for that, but you could carry it around with you and take pictures of all kinds of things, right? But every time we had to have light, we had to have an object, we had to have a camera, we had to have film, physical film, right? And all of that would then create a photograph. But in order for the photograph to be visible and to actually be a, be seen as a reproduction of what, what the photographer saw, then you had to go through a whole new process, right, of developing the photograph, which required chemicals and patience and paper and all sorts of stuff. Okay, so that that's how it worked. And voila, you had to work with a negative coming out of that film, and it was called a negative because the colors were reversed, so to speak. Dark tones were light on the negative. Light tones were dark. And when what and then that chemical process made that reverse, and that on paper then created the photograph that we think about, right? That we think about, and we see, right? Okay, so fast forward, if you will, to the digital camera and the digital photographs. Very different thing. It's still, we think, most of us, that it requires an object, that it requires light, that it requires somebody, and it definitely does require somebody clicking a shutter. It's not a shutter anymore, but we make that sound as they are just to remind us that's what's happening, right? Something like that. And then voila, instantaneously, you get a reproduction, it looks like, of what you just saw. And that's big, instantly. Not only that, if you want to share that photograph, you can do it instantaneously via social networks, right? So so that's a very different kind of mode of photo, photo, photography, too. But the biggest difference in terms of the photograph itself is well, there are two big differences. One is the difference between converting it, and this is actually a language that the scholar of photography uses. She describes the process, this is Angela Wells, she describes the process of um, of going from the object to the analog photographs as a process of transcription. But she describes the process of going from, of creating a digital photograph as a process of conversion. Because what's happening is with the digital photograph is that data, visual data, whatever it is, is being converted to pixels. 
And those pixels are bits of computer programming, really, right? X's and O's, essentially. That's what this photograph is. Now, here's the other big catch. It actually does not take an object or light to create a digital photograph. You can make a digital photograph out of whole digital cloth, which is why we're concerned about things like deep fakes, right, these days. So that's really different. So the question is, should we even call digital photography light writing at all? Since light is not required to create the thing, right? So in terms of the technology, they're very different. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Ellen T. Armour. She's E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Chair and Professor of Feminist Theology at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Today we're talking about her recent book, Seeing and Believing, Religion, Digital Visual Culture, and Social Justice. I really love the capaciousness of your answer because it opens up so many more questions for me. And the first one is, so you've said that there's almost a discontinuity between this more ancient kind of light writing, which you referred to as transcription, and this more contemporary kind of capture of an image, which you referred to as conversion. I think a lot of my listeners maybe have the naive notion that when they take a photograph of something, they're capturing the truth of it. And I wonder, maybe that's another piece that we can bring in as we're setting the table here. What would you say to this notion that we're somehow capturing the truth of a moment when we take a photograph of it? Yeah, it's a great question, too. That's been a question about photography since the beginning. We do take for granted that that's what a photograph is. That, in, in fact, some folks back in the day when it was first created referred to it as a light pencil, right? That would, and it was supposed to just simply record exactly what you see. And to a certain degree, it certainly does that, right? But, but there are issues with that. For one thing, it requires, it's always going to be perspectival because somebody is standing there shooting, deciding what to focus on, deciding how to focus it and taking the picture, right? That's always going to be the case. So there will always be something left out without question is that um, that that and that can range in all kinds of directions too. in my previous book, Signs and Wonders, which um, Seeing and Believing builds on. I actually talk about several examples of that in what I call photographic Orientalism. So some photographs of. Well, actually, I didn't make that. Well, I did. Photographic Orientalism. I did come up with that, I think. Anyway, and, uh, but there were photographs, photographers who would take pictures of, of, say, the pyramids in Egypt. And they would wait till just the right time until there was nobody around, no animals, no nothing, right? And then they would shoot the picture, right? Because they were shooting the picture for a Western audience. And they wanted them just to kind of, you know, it was photographic tourism too, right? So... So there, there's always been a perspective of some sort or another and things left out of any given photograph. So that's not a new thing. But what is interesting about how it was, how it is that we came to believe that photography and that photographs are simply nothing more than what I call they're that there then. You point, you shoot, you got it. Actually had to be, had to be developed over time through the use of photography in different kinds of forms and different kinds of ways. Again, that's a that's the focus of signs and wonders. And so people who are interested in that might find that really fascinating. But that particular so that particular way of thinking about photographs is really interesting. Mugshots, for example, are another really good one, right? 
we think of a mugshot as nothing more than, again, it just all you did was had the, the prisoner or the whoever look at you and then you took the picture. But actually, people have to be trained in how to take a mugshot. And that requires training. And there are certain conventions about what a mugshot should look like. Think about a passport photo, same thing, right? And the fact of the matter is that's true for pretty much all of our photography that we take. A selfie has its own particular constraints too. And we have certain expectations about it. And we have even come in the area of digital photography to expect photographs to be a certain size and to be a certain a certain shape too. So no photograph has ever been simply, right, just nothing more than a light pencil capturing what's in front of it. But the other piece of it, too, that differentiates analog photography and digital photography is what happens when you work with the photograph. So for an analog photograph, as you make copies after copy, the data there disintegrates. And so in art photography, you'll see this is the first print out of 360 or something along those lines, right? That matters because of the actual accuracy of it. Well, that's not true with a digital photograph. You can copy, copy, copy. They all look the same. But here's what's really interesting. If you take a, an analog photograph and enlarge it, you actually see more detail than the photo photographer would have seen and probably than anybody would have seen. Keep getting bigger and bigger and more and more. But with a digital photograph, as you enlarge it, it begins to deteriorate. And you see less and less, actually. So there again, the question is, what does it mean to talk about photographic truth, as I call it, right? It's complicated. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Ellen T. Armour. She's E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Chair and Professor of Feminist Theology at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville, Tennessee, where she also directs the Carpenter Program in Religion, Gender, and Sexuality. Her previous books include one that we've just been discussing, Signs and Wonders, Theology After Modernity. Today we're talking about her most recent book, Seeing and Believing, Religion, Digital Visual Culture, and Social Justice. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Professor Ellen T. Armour. She is E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Chair and Professor of Feminist Theology at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville, Tennessee. She also directs the Carpenter Program in Religion, Gender, and Sexuality at the Vanderbilt Divinity School. Her books include Signs and Wonders, Theology After Modernity, and today we're talking about her most recent book, Seeing and Believing, Religion, Digital Visual Culture, and Social Justice. 
Well, in the first section, we really went blue sky with these questions. We were like, what is the essence of photography? What does it mean to take a photograph? What is the relationship of photography and truth? And all along the way, your answers began to give us some vocabulary to think about this. But now I want to introduce another vocabulary word, one that comes very late in your book, Seeing and Believing. It's a fancy technical word, ascesis. And it's similar to, as you point out, where we get our religious word, asceticism. But as I understood it in your book, Seeing and Believing, ascesis is the process of slowing down and trying to be very particular and careful about what we're looking at and what we're saying about what we're looking at. And it's, it seemed to me throughout your entire book, Seeing and Believing, even though we get to ascesis very late in the book, your entire ethos in the book is trying to get the reader to slow down and to stop thinking so quickly about photographs, but instead to try and get to the point where they really begin to think deeply, as you've already done with us in the conversation, about how we should be talking about things like truth and the relationship of truth to photographs, how we should be talking about the ways in which the technology underlying what we're seeing affects what we're seeing. I'd really like to invite you to talk to us then about this process of slowing down. Why is it so important ethically for us to slow down in these moments? Mm -hmm. That's also a great question, David. I think the key is, first, we've got to understand the context in which we're seeing these things, right? These days, most of us encounter photographs on social media, some social media platform, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all the different ones. And we need to think about that, first of all. We just get on those platforms. We don't pay for them. We just kind of create our little Facebook pages and connect with people and have a great time or don't, depending right on what's going on. But we, we, and we even call these social media platforms our new public square. Right. Because we engage so much there and we engage politically there. We engage in all kinds of ways. Church happens on social media sometimes. All kinds of things are happening there. So and they are in many ways our new public square. But they're public in a certain way. They're public in that anybody and everybody can be on it. But they're privately owned. They are owned by multinational corporations. And those multinational corporations, like Meta, for example, make money off of our engagement with these platforms. So what they need and what they want is our attention. Some folks are calling this the attention economy now, right? And what they want is our eyes on whatever. And what captures our attention What gets our eyes, right, to look, what gets us to look, tends to be stuff that we have a strong emotional reaction to. In fact, outrage is one of the things that really gets our attention. There's been scientific data about that. So that's the first thing, is to recognize that we are participating in what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. And as I'm saying, these multinational corporations are making money off of our attention. So that's the first thing to remember, particularly whenever something catches our eye and we have a strong emotional response to it. Another thing about what catches our eye, we'll, we've, I'm sure, noticed that our, the social media platforms are visually saturated. Rarely do you see anything 
on social media that isn't accompanied by some kind of visual image, a photograph, a meme, whatever, right? And, and that's significant too. That's because, again, it grabs our attention. What we tend to do in the way that we interact with social media is scroll through, right? We scroll through pretty quickly. Oh, that's a cool one. That's a cool one, cool one. But then every now and then something just grabs us and we have to stop for a minute. And that is really important because what I want us to pay attention to is not just photographic truth, but what I call photographic affect, right? That is how photographs move us emotionally and sometimes to take action. So when a photograph grabs us, for example, the videos taken of police officers killing young black men, right? When something like that grabs us, then we need to think about, and that's what I'm trying to get us to do, think about why it is that this has grabbed our attention, what it is about it that moves us, and why it is that it might move us, right? And to do that, that is a very different kind of approach to engaging with social media than the one we're used to, this really fast scrolling. I mean, when I'm talking about ascesis, right? It is slowing down, contemplating in a way to think about what it is about this photograph that moves me and why it moves me in this particular way. Now, the trick is the same photograph can move us in different directions. I anchor seeing and believing in a particular photographic storyline, I call it, right, that was inaugurated by the killing of Trayvon Martin in Florida. And that particular incident, which wasn't photographed, by the way, but that particular incident helped launch Black Lives Matter movement, which incidentally, right, hashtag Black Lives Matter. It started as a movement on Twitter and became this very much an embodied movement. And the Black Lives Matter protests that happened in response were some of the largest ones, if not the largest, in the world. And they were global. They didn't happen just in the U.S., but global protests. That's significant. But at the same time, that's not the only arc to the storyline that gets launched. The story about Trayvon Martin and photographs of police murders, et cetera, et cetera, prompted Dylan Roof to get online and to Google Black on Black crime. And that led him down this terrible rabbit hole. The outcome of that was his decision to go and murder nine people at Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina. And his actions also, and then, which in fact, he <laughs> created this manifesto and put that online all about it. And then that prompted in turn a man in Australia to go to a mosque and do the same thing and film it on Facebook and actually show it live on Facebook. So this is what I mean. The consequences of our visually saturated social media landscape are serious. And it is important then that we really do look into the photograph more deeply, I think. As I'm listening to your answer, this notion of photographic affect, so we're scrolling, we're scrolling, and something grabs us, and you're encouraging us to notice what we're being grabbed by and what we're feeling when we're being grabbed. And then you talk about this notion of photographic storyline, something that plays very strongly in your analysis and seeing and believing, where we begin to take these moments of affect and begin to pull them into a narrative. And sometimes those narratives become very socially liberating, like Black Lives Matter. Sometimes they become very socially destructive in the case of Dylan Roof, the example that you gave. 
as I say this back to you, have I got the basic way that these things are fitting together correctly or have I missed something and would you say it differently? No, I think you've got it exactly right. I think what I want to call our attention to there is, is really what's at stake, right, in these things. Susan Sontag, who is a name that people may know as a public intellectual, talks about a photograph from the war in Bosnia. It was a photograph of a child, a dead child on the train tracks and the mother, grieving mother, leaning over it. And she reports that both sides of the conflict used that photograph successfully to marshal support for their side. So these can really, truly be matters of life and death. Now, of course, that's not going to be true about all photographs, but I think it is important to bear in mind what's at stake there. That Yeah, that's exactly what I'm after. Pay attention. Well, what strikes me about this, and I'm about to introduce something that you don't talk about specifically in your book, Seeing and Believing, but I'm going to use it to bridge to language that you do use in the book. So it strikes me that as we're talking about this interrupted affect of kind of noticing how we're feeling as we're interacting, there's a real connection here to Ignatian spirituality and the notion of the kind of Jesuit process. They have a fancy word for it, cura personalis, or care for the whole person, encouraging people to notice themselves and when they're feeling consolation and when they're feeling desolation. And as I begin to introduce that kind of religious analysis into it, I'm making a move that is very similar to one that you're making in the latter half of Seeing and Believing, where you're saying, listen, it's not just a matter of thinking about the psychology of this, but as we begin to think about this in a social justice context, we have tremendous resources in religious analysis and religious language. I wonder if you could begin to tie together some of those threads for us. Yeah, no, Absolutely. First thing to notice, I think, is if I can go back for a minute to our conversation about the surveillance economy, there are a number of authors who have written about that economy and written about the social media and so on, who actually adopt what I call a kind of theologic to describe how that economy works. I want to make sure, as you say, theologic, yeah. some listeners yeah. might hear theological. Explain for us right. theologic, because there's a hyphen yeah. in there. I want to make yeah. sure it's plain. Explain that for yeah. us. Yes. It's a logic, a logic that is based on theology. So a theological logic, you might say, right? So these are secular writers, and they're making the claim that there is a kind of, they're using the metaphorical analogy, if you will, of God to explain how this economy works, how surveillance capitalism works. And thinking about it specifically in relationship to knowledge, right, to knowledge and power. So they're saying that these giants of surveillance capitalism are essentially, if they're not there yet, they're aspiring to a kind of godlike power where God sees all, God knows all, God controls all. And there's good reason to think about these multinational corporations as having that kind of goal or aspiration. Whether they'll get there or not, that's another story. I raised some questions about that to a certain degree. But that's the first thing that we need to remember is that religion is already there in the discourse around social media and photography. And another case in photography is we talk about iconic photographs, right, which is another religious term. And iconic photographs are, as the scholars that I use to talk about that, titled their book, No Caption Needed, right? That is, these are photographs that capture an event, a powerful event with such power and pathos that you don't even need a caption to know what the photograph is. So Migrant Mother, for example, a photograph taken by Dorothea Lange during the, during the Depression, right? 
or Napalm Girl, a photograph taken by a photojournalist in Vietnam of a girl running naked down the street after a napalm bomb went off. Those are examples of iconic photographs. So religion's already there in how we see and what we see. And it's often the case that photographs that move us are photographs that have some degree of religious resonance to them. So the photograph of migrant mother, that photograph, for example, is often compared to the Pieta, the pictures of the sculptures and paintings and the motif of Mary holding Jesus, her son, right after the crucifixion. Lots of other photographs that become iconic often mimic the crucifixion. So there are all kinds of ways that religion's already there. But what I'm trying to do in the concluding chapters in particular of this book is to give us some strategies, if you will, for how we can work with what we see on social media and strategies that will allow us to, once we've slowed down, I guess, to engage with photograph more deeply. And what I do is cultivate, or I guess I could say cultivate, provide is more the accurate word, a visual repertoire of gazes that I got from another scholar, David Morgan, who teaches at Duke. And these are ways of seeing that he finds in Christianity in particular, but that he also says, makes very clear, are present in plenty of other religious traditions too. But the key thing is, these are also ways of seeing that basically repurpose ways we already see that come naturally to us, so to speak, right? So that's what makes these so useful, I think, right? Is that they are potentially ways we're looking at photographs anyway, and let's pay deeper attention to them. So I want to dig deeper into this because you've said at a couple of points, religion is already there, but there's a move that you make in seeing and believing that I really liked. You, You said very explicitly, religion's already there, but you don't have to be religious in order for this to work as an analysis. The Christian way of seeing gives us a lot of ways to think about this, but you don't have to be Christian to see that way. I wonder if you could talk about that shift that you're making, because it was really interesting to me, and it's very much like anyone can do this, even though this is specifically religious language. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, even go back to the theologic I talked about, right? The fact that these scholars who are not religious themselves turn to a theologic that's associated with Christianity. It's not exclusive to Christianity, but associated with it. The fact that they make that turn, and the same with iconic, right? That's not specific to Christianity, but it's a term we associate with Christianity. As I say elsewhere, Christianity, thanks to colonialism and globalization, Christianity is in the cultural water we drink, in the cultural air that we breathe. So those motifs are out there and available for anybody and everybody to use, and they often do. So that's the first thing. Now, that's a different claim in some ways from what I'm saying about these religious ways of seeing, because these are ways of seeing that, as again, I'm arguing, come naturally to us, right? So that's not really necessarily at all about Christianity being in the cultural air we breathe, et cetera. But I guess the connection that I would want to make in the end, particularly around these, these particular religious ways of seeing, why turn to them? Because they do something that is really distinctive. They don't address directly any of the issues, social justice issues, et cetera, that we're talking about. But what they all do is they reverse the hierarchy of seer overseen. 
That's really, to my mind, the key thing. In a sense, that's already happened when we see, when we encounter a photograph that makes us just stop dead in our tracks, right? That photograph has captured our attention in a way that does prioritize the scene over the seer, right? But there are different ways that we can interact with that and that we are interacting and engaging in that experience of being, of having our our control over what we see disrupted. And what I want us to do is to mobilize that in particular ways. I did an experiment just to see how it would work with some students in my class. I taught a class on theology, visual media, and basically this subject. And at the beginning of the class, before we read anything, I showed them a selfie of Trayvon Martin, which became such an iconic picture in the Black Lives Matter movement, right? How many people went around marching with those signs? Barack Obama taking a photograph of himself in a gray hoodie, right? Really an iconic photograph. Look at that photograph of Trayvon Martin, a selfie. Look at Dylan Roof's selfie, the one that he posted online of himself sitting on a rock in front of a fireplace holding a gun and the Confederate flag, right? And he posted that with his manifesto. I asked them to look at one or the other of those photographs and write down what they thought, what they felt, how they reacted. And then I said, save that, just save it. At the end of the class, after we had read all this stuff, I asked them to pull out what they had written and we took them through David Morgan's eight gazes and asked them to identify if they could, and it was fine if they didn't, a gaze that accurately described how they engaged with the photograph the first time. And then I asked them to engage with that photograph again picking, deliberately picking one of the other gazes and to see what happened when they looked at it that way. And it was really amazing to a person. They could identify a gaze that actually did describe how they had engaged with that photograph in the first place. And what happened whenever they engaged with the photograph through a different gaze was really significant too. And One could argue, well, of course it's going to be, because these are now people who are really literate in the scholarship around photographic work and stuff. And that's true. But what was particularly interesting to me is they didn't make any references to anything that we read, not one thing. They talked about their own personal histories and just really how those photographs moved them and how they moved them differently, depending on how they looked. So that gave me real confidence, I guess, might be the right word, in this particular visual repertoire and its ability to speak to us, to help us, to guide us whenever we are in a situation where we're caught up with a photograph that we just really can't quit looking at. And so that's what I hope. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Ellen T. Armour. She's E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Chair and Professor of Feminist Theology at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville, Tennessee, where she also directs the Carpenter Program in Religion, Gender, and Sexuality. Today we're talking about her recent book, Seeing and Believing, Religion, Digital Visual Culture, and Social Justice. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. 
There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're speaking with Ellen T. Armour. She is E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Chair and Professor of Feminist Theology at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville, Tennessee, where she also directs the Carpenter Program in Religion, Gender, and Sexuality. Today we're talking about her recent book, Seeing and Believing, Religion, Digital Visual Culture, and Social Justice. Before the break, you mentioned this, but I want to circle back to it. The repertoire of gazes that you got from this thinker at Duke University, David Morgan. I wonder if you could help my listeners understand when we're talking about this, what are some of the types of gazing that we're talking about? If you could just give a couple of examples. Sure. The first one that comes to mind, of course, is probably the most obvious one, and that's the devotional gaze. And in the devotional gaze, how do I want to describe it? It's voluntary submission to the visual object. So it's walking up to, deliberately walking up to that, that famous painting. I can't think what it's called right now, of the crucifixion, right? You're, you're walking up to it and you are just, in a sense, bowing to it in some way. So that's one. It happens when you approach a photograph that's not a religious photograph, but with something like devotion, right? Something like that. That's one. Another one is the reciprocal gaze, which talks about a transformative exchange between the seer and the seen. And that is then, again, something that can happen, say, in the presence of a religious icon, right? But doesn't have to be. People describe that often in relationship to the Virgin Mary Guadalupe statue, right? Where you encounter this photograph and there's a kind of exchange that happens between you and the photograph. Several of my students use that one to describe how they interacted with one or the other of these photographs. There's also the aversive gaze. That's a really interesting one to my mind, in which, is, in which case you can look around the visual object rather than directly at it. And there were several students who did that, particularly in the case of white students, tried to use that gaze when they were looking at, at Dylan Roof because they just did not want to look into his eyes and they did not want to have to confront that, right? So what does it feel like to gaze that way, right? That's a gaze. I know that doesn't sound like it is one, but it is one, right? You're looking away and what happens? So those are a few examples. There, there are more, but I love those three in particular. What I really like about this is you're inviting your readers, and again, this is not exactly language that you use, but I hope that we can use it to, to get deeper into your book, Seeing and Believing. You're inviting them to have a parasocial relationship with these images. So when you're averting your gaze, it's almost like I, I thought about the stereotypical thing from a romantic comedy where two eyes meet across a room and then one looks away quickly because they can't stand the power and the energy of the gaze. That When you talk about the avertive gaze, it feels like that. But you're imagining that the, the person, the object, whatever is there in that image can see you in some way. Is that saying it too broadly or is it actually like that? No, it actually is like that. I think one thing about these two photographs in particular, about selfies in particular, is how important the eyes are, right? How important the face and the eyes are. And if, to a, well, I would, maybe not to a person, but it's certainly many of the students who talked about the challenge and the power of looking into those eyes, right? Whether it's Dylan Roos or Trayvon Martin's. And the more they looked, the more they saw. 
And in a sense, that's definitely what's happening with the reciprocal gaze is that you get that sense of a back and forth between them. There's a really interesting vignette that I talk about briefly in the book, I think. Another scholar of photography, W.J.T. Mitchell, talks about a colleague of his who who taught photography in, in, at a college or university. And he would, every time he taught this particular class, he would ask his students to bring in a photograph of their mother to the class. And then he would say, okay, cut the eyes out. And to a person, they would refuse. <laughs> they would never cut the eyes out of a photograph. Now, that tells you something, right? about the power of photography and the kind of, I don't know, iconic representation in some way that we take these photographs to be, right? So there again, that's another way of saying, I think these gazes that I'm getting from Morgan, I think he's exactly right. These are gazes that come naturally to us that we're already using and that really do describe how we engage with photographs. This was one of the places where your book Seeing and Believing was especially powerful for me. And I remember the vignette about cutting out the eyes from the pictures of your mother. And that caused a physical reaction when I read that. But I also really want to come back to this language that you've been giving us throughout the book that helps us slow down and think very technically and critically about what we're seeing. When we look at a selfie, as I understand your analysis, a selfie is a type of photograph that wants something very specific from us. It wants a kind of reaction from us. It's framed to create a certain type of emotion in us. And in that sense, this opens up the moral dimension that you really want to get to in your book. And I wonder if we can use this as a bridge to start talking about when a photograph wants something from us, how then can we begin to talk about things like social justice? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Another scholar whose work I use in the book talks about another difference between photographic lives or photographic culture these days, particularly online and the past. He talks about digital photography as really social photography. That is, what we're trying to capture is not so much a a moment or a piece of information or something, but we are capturing something that we want to use to engage with the world. So a selfie, the fact that we take selfies all the time, is really kind of the epitome in some ways of the social photograph, right? Because we do that because we want engagement. Because we want engagement, we don't just take the selfie and then go away. We post the selfie. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. So we want response. We want you to pay attention. And that's certainly true in the case of Dylan Roof's selfie. That's exactly what he wanted. He put that up with the manifesto. He is looking at you like, okay, come on, you're either with me or against me. You know, you're going to be accountable for this. Hang on. Really read this thing come with me, right? And he said explicitly that his goal was to start a race war, right? We're fortunate that at least so far he hasn't in the sense of other people in the U.S. at least taking up exactly what he's done, but that was clearly what his intent was. Trayvon's, I don't know, because that was not taken at all in relationship to what happened to him. But the power of Trayvon's photograph, the way it became iconic in the Black Lives Matter movement, as we talked about, how many photographs have you seen of people walking in protests, carrying big versions, right, enlarged versions of that photograph as they walk? And how many people other than Barack Obama took photographs of selfies of themselves, right, dressed like Trayvon Martin and posted them online, often on the Black Lives Matter network? 
So yeah, this is the, the, I don't think there's much you need to say other than clearly this is something that we are now that really are, that really is becoming an, an accelerant in movements for social justice or resistance to movements for social justice. Either way, right? That's the key thing. Now, that's not new in a certain respect. We go back to the two iconic photographs I'd mentioned earlier, Migrant Mother from the Depression and Napalm Girl from the Vietnam War. Both of those also were catalysts for social justice. In the case of Migrant Mother, that photograph is credited with helping to boost support for the New Deal. And in the case of Napalm Girl, that photograph is credited with helping support the case for for getting out of Vietnam and for bringing that war to an end. So again, it's not new. We can think about the photographs of what happened on the bridge at Selma, right, that are also very similar. So that's not new. But what's different now is these platforms that anybody can use. So whereas in the past, Editors were in charge of determining what we saw, what photographs we saw, what photographs were going to appear in a newspaper or on on TV or whatever. Now it's up to us, right? We call ourselves prosumers. We should call ourselves prosumers because we both produce and consume content. And a lot of the content that then gets picked up by legacy media and put in papers, which again are going to be digital mostly anyway, often is photographic content produced by an ordinary individual. Again, the police videos are cases in point, right? So we have seen how these things can mobilize efforts for social justice. But of course, they're going to promote a response as well, right? And we've seen that happening now also more and more. Well, and this notion of response, I think, opens up then the capstone of your book, Seeing and Believing, and that's this notion of photographic insurrection, which you introduce. And I wonder if you can help my listeners understand, because those, a word that maybe they know and maybe another word that they think that they know, and you put them together and it has an explosive combination. Tell us about photographic insurrection. What is it supposed to do? What do you hope it will do in terms of this process towards social justice? Yeah. Well, one of the key differences between seeing and believing and signs and wonders, my previous book, is the fact that I am interested in photographic insurrection, the most recent one. In seeing in signs and wonders, I talk a lot about what I call photographic subjection, which again has to do with the ways photographs entrain us in certain ways of seeing, right? And ways of seeing and therefore knowing, doing, and being. And those are ways of seeing that are infused with a lot of the kind of inherent biases we talk about now, right, with issues around with racism and sexism and so on. So, for example, let's think about Trayvon Martin's photograph. When you look at that photograph, do you see just a young man wearing a hoodie, perfectly innocent, or do you see a potential criminal, right? And that is going to have to do with, in many ways, how many of us, especially even us good white people, as we call ourselves, right? And that's a, we're, I'm sincere when I say that. Really good white people, right, who don't think of ourselves as racist and who aren't racist in the way that, say, Dylan Reef is. But the ways that we often respond to being in the presence of Black bodies, we turn away, we get scared. We, it's, and it's just, it's almost a visceral reaction that if we were to try to explain it, we couldn't, right? Except to say, well, I feel somehow under threat. So these ways of seeing are kind of deeply enculturated into us, is what I've argued. 
So that's photographic subjection. We tend to comply with the carrots and sticks, right? That come our way in terms of how we see and how we are and how we do. So photographic insurrection would be, okay, what if we broke with that way of seeing? What if, okay, yeah, I look at Trayvon Martin's selfie and I think potential criminal, which is basically what the guy who killed him thought, right? Seeing him go walking down the street in a gray hoodie in a white neighborhood where he didn't belong, right? But instead of seeing that, let me think about why I see it that way and why I see him that way. And let me see if I can see something else when I look at that photograph. That would be photographic, the potential there for photographic insurrection, for breaking with these ways we've been disciplined and entrained to see in ways that then allow us to advance the causes of social justice, right? And to see ourselves as maybe, okay, I'm going to align myself there rather than just flipping on to the next thing. Let me see if I have this. I'm going to go way left field, but hopefully the analogy will work. So during the Cold War, we've heard a story of a flock of birds that were picked up by the radar and a signal came through on the Soviet side to launch the nuclear missiles. And there was one particular cadet who refused the order. And so we can think about this in terms of everything that he had been entrained to do by the military, follow orders, launch on command, all those things. And yet he had a moral response in that moment that, it, that interrupted all of that training. And he said, no, I'm going to do this differently. When I use that example, am I getting at what you're talking about? You hope that we're doing when we start to look at photographs in this way. Have I got it right? Yes, you've got it right. You've got it right. And I'm hoping that will be, again, that's going to, that's a small thing, but maybe it can motivate us to, to do bigger things. You'll remember back in the wake of, well, in the, in the height of the Black Lives Matter movement that people were reading Abram Kennedy's book on how to be an anti-racist, right? Or white fragility. And white people were really sincere in wanting to get into that and wanting to understand more about racism and how it works and how they can work against it. So it's going to take more work than just engaging with that photograph differently. But what I say is that maybe photographic insurrection, maybe looking at one will jumpstart photographic insurrection. And then that in turn can inspire folks to do the deeper dive that they're going to need to do if they're going to truly be anti-racist in their real lives. So there's no guarantee at all that's going to happen. But yeah, that's what I'd like to see. Well, at a couple of points in your book, Seeing and Believing, you make a gesture to a book that has not yet been written, a book that is yet to come that builds on signs and wonders in Seeing and Believing that really begins to flesh out the social ethic that you're moving towards here. And so I guess I want to put it to you as my last question. Are we looking at a trilogy here? Is this something that is being planned and you're actively pursuing it? Or is that more what Jacques Derrida would call the book that is always yet to come, that you're always moving towards? Like, How tangible is this ethic for you? Mm -hmm. Boy, that's a great question, especially right now. I have been on research leave this last semester, and, which, and it's a weird time to be on leave because part of what I had to do was just get the book out, finished. It's a publishing process, but I so but I have been thinking about that quite a bit, and and I'm not sure if what I have planned now is going to quite get there. But I am thinking about looking probably through a different issue now. I'm thinking about looking at how we see gender in relationship to, and especially with all that's going on with trans people and stuff, and going back and looking at art photographs in particular and how they can help us 
which doesn't really quite get to a full social ethic, but it might be a bridge. So it might be, I think it probably is the Derridian thing, the book that's always out there, yet to be written. But time will tell. Well, Ellen T. Armour, I learned so much from your book, Seeing and Believing. I remember back when I was in graduate school at Vanderbilt reading Susan Sontag's book on photography. And this book is a wonderful complement to that. It builds on some of the themes and ideas there but takes it in an explicitly theological direction, but even for people that aren't theologians and even for people that aren't believers. It's a wonderfully capacious, inviting, generous book. I am so glad that you took the time to write it, but thank you especially for taking the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it, and I'm glad to do it. It's an honor to be part of this. We've been speaking today with Ellen T. Armour. She is E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Chair and Professor of Feminist Theology at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville, Tennessee, where she also directs the Carpenter Program in Religion, Gender, and Sexuality. One of her previous books was Signs and Wonders, Theology After Modernity, which we've talked about extensively during our conversation, but we've also been talking about her most recent book, just out, called Seeing and Believing, Religion, Digital Visual Culture, and Social Justice. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.